Good morning. The text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. Uh, if you've been with us over these last several weeks, you know that we've been looking, <clears throat> working our way through the 12 steps, and I'll get into that in more in just a minute. But uh, this last week on Tuesday, I flew in from or flew back from England visiting my daughter. Uh, I don't know how some of you do it, but jet lag, I do not handle jet lag well. That, that really is a gross understatement. Um, this entire week, walking around in fog, in fact, I told uh, Diana not to put any appointments on my uh, calendar because I could not verify anything that I might or might not say um, because I have no idea. Um, this trip, for some reason, even more uh, impacted by the jet lag than I have been in the past. Walking around in a fog, that really describes many of us, especially spiritually. We feel like <clears throat> if we were to ask, how's your spiritual life? Uh, most of us would respond something like, it's okay. Not great. Maybe not terrible. It's just okay. Or we could even press that further. How are, uh, how's your marriage? Most people would say, it's, it's okay. Not great. It's not awful. If it was awful, I'd come see you. But it's not either one of those things. Um, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to sort of let it be what it is and not really work on that. The 12 steps, the steps that we've been looking at are all about awakening, awaking up, coming out of a fog spiritually. It's really about a trustful intimacy with God. And the steps have to be taken in sequence. They, what I mean by that is... Uh, they can't be skipped. You can't skip around and pick the ones you like and do those and, and not do the rest of them. They can't be trivialized either. If you've been with us, you know that we keep going back to these first three steps, which really can be summarized, I can't, can't do this. Uh, God can, or at least I kind of believe that he can, and then I think I'll let him. That's step three. Um, four, we made a a fearless and searching moral inventory, if that doesn't sound like fun. And then we admit that list, that inventory to God, uh, to ourselves, and to another person. It really is about humility. Uh, the problem with all of these steps is it forces me uh, to be concerned about me, to look at me and not someone else. There's nothing in these steps actually about others. Six and seven, if you were here last week, Kyle talked about asking God to remove my shortcomings. And this morning we're going to look at eight and nine. There are reasons why, just to give you a heads up, that there are seven steps that go ahead of eight and nine that have to be worked first. Otherwise, it really is nothing short of a disaster is the best way to describe it. Step eight says this, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And then step nine may direct amends to such person, people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. It brings us to our text this morning from Hosea. You're going to probably be thinking, how? Well, I hope to be able to at least do something with this uh, this morning. Look with me as I read from Hosea chapter 1, the first 11 verses. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. 
For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Rumaha, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I'll save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horse or horseman, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Rumaha, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said to him, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. And the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that you'd be with us as we look into uh, this portion, a story of your prophet, but really a story of your people, our story. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We know that certain names come loaded with, uh, well, baggage is the best description. Just hearing a name can really raise an eyebrow. Uh, it can cause blood pressure to rise. Uh, some of the names we don't know personally, but because of the baggage, we still have similar responses. What's your response to the name Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, Donald Trump, Hitler? Where one begins to shift through that baggage is unknown. We come across this passage in Hosea, and you just have to know or look at who makes the list is the best description. Step 8 says, I made a list of all persons that we had harmed. See, what does Hosea 1 have to do with the 12 steps? Hosea begins with a list of names. We don't have the baggage associated with those names. In fact, we rarely even know what these names mean and who they are. But the people who heard this text, read this text, they would know. They would know the kings that are named and the things that those kings did, the things that were associated with them, the baggage that they wore. Uzziah was struck with leprosy uh, for burning false incense. Every time his name was mentioned, you would think of that. Ahaz, a king that is beyond description, who sacrificed his own son, name forever associated with that act. See, why does Step 8 say we made a list of all persons we had harmed Naming allows us to state the issue and the baggage that's associated with it. It allows secrets to come out. It means that there's, step eight allows us to not have a blood pressure rise uh, when we hear someone's name mentioned. And even in Hosea, what you find is uh, what the list is not, it's not everyone. There's this temptation to think, well, I've just hurt everybody, and so I'll put everybody on the list, and that really is just another form of self-pity. 
Another form of actually playing the victim or even worse, the martyr. So who does make the list? If we're to make a list of everyone that we have harmed, the first person on that list should be yourself. Why would I say that? Most of us have caused enormous damage to ourselves. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. For many of us, we've lost the ability to care for ourselves at all. We go without, because that's what the martyr does, um, in order to exercise control and power over other people. If our name is the first one, there are other names that should appear on the list as well. The way the step works is this, people that we have harmed. I want you to see, because we're going to spend some time on this in just a minute, it's not what others think you have done or what you think you have done or not done. The temptation is that we want to add people to other people's list. That's a problem as well. And this list always begins with the people that are closest to you. It also mitigates against, works against the idea of over-responsibility. I'm the cause of everyone's woes. When my son first went into treatment, that is a huge issue that I had to work through. I took on his addiction, his problems. My parenting caused this. At least that's what is said commonly in our culture. In April of this year, we witnessed probably the greatest comeback in sports history with Tiger Woods at the Masters. What really made that story sort of sing was what we know as the background. In 2010 in Newsweek, he gave an evaluation, an honest appraisal of his mistakes. This is what he said, Last November, everything I thought I knew about myself changed abruptly. And what others perceived of me shifted too. My life was out of balance. My priorities were out of order. I made terrible choices and repeated mistakes. I hurt people whom I loved the most. And even beyond accepting the consequences and responsibility, there's an ongoing struggle for me to learn from my failures. He said, frankly, at first I didn't want to look inward. I was scared of what I'd find and what I had become. He said, golf is a self-centered game for good or bad. So much depends on your own abilities. For me, that self-reliance made me think I could tackle the world by myself. It made me think if I was successful at golf, then I was invincible. Listen, this step encourages us, like Hosea, to make a list. We state the issues. We make a list and deal with it. Because if we don't, what happens is it burdens us and makes us sick. One writer said this, you're only as sick as your secrets. The list always starts with the people closest, the ones that you've harmed the most. What is terrible about the list is this, I can't tell you who should be on your list. Everybody's list is different because everybody hurts people differently, especially those around them. That's the beginning, to make a list of the people that we have harmed. Now, the step's going to say that we make amends. Verse 10 starts with some encouraging words, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. See, it's not just making a list of people that we've harmed, but actually the steps go further and say that you make amends to them. That the present condition does not dictate what will be. That's what's happening in verse 10. There's a mood change. Everything looks dismal up until verse 10. So what is an amend? 
There's all types of bad ideas, especially in the church regarding this. Most people that begin to work the 12 steps jump right to 8 and 9 in panic because they can't imagine making a list of people that they've hurt and even worse, going to see them about it. An amend is not an apology. Actually, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do you actually find an apology. It may be a part of it, but it's certainly not the essence of what an amend is. It's not saying I'm sorry. It's also not an opportunity to justify why I hurt you, if that makes sense. It's not defending myself in that regard or trying to explain why I hurt you. An amend is also not about other people at all, uh, believe it or not. And it's not even for the other person. The step says this, that we're willing to make this amend. So what is it? We're willing to do what, actually? One writer said this, we're willing to own what we've done. We own the harm. It's, It's the elephant in the room, so to speak. One writer went on to say, vengeance against the self or vengeance against another person is not our job. It might take a long time to become willing to make an amend. That is why some people go to step eight meetings for years. They learn to make lists, but not of what others have done to them, which is the normal ego style that we make lists. And it's a pattern that once practiced is very hard to stop. See, an amend is an acknowledgement that I can't change the past. I can express regret over what I've done, and I can make a commitment to try not to make those same mistakes again, but what's done is done. I had the pleasure this week of being with my grandchildren, especially the, uh, Reed, the youngest. Uh, there's an interesting phenomenon if you've been around really small children that they think, um, they firmly believe that if they close their eyes, uh, that you can't see them. Uh, that if they close their eyes, it doesn't exist. Whatever's out there suddenly disappears. Uh, For many of us, that's exactly the problem that we face when we come to these steps. We think if we don't look at it, it doesn't exist. If we don't address it, the problem will go away, and it never does. It just festers underneath the surface. It causes immense harm to us and those around us. It takes away physically from us. Deep studies have shown how much stress actually impacts a person's life in all the negative ways that we can imagine. Strokes, heart attacks, blood pressure, we know all those things. Ulcers, that's my favorite, I have those. Um, Those things are direct results of not addressing harm that we've done to others. See, what this step really is, it provides a, a fertile ground for God to work. It means cleaning up my side of the street. It means dropping bags and and burdens. Getting rid of the awful guilt for what I've done and the enormous shame that I feel because of it. I did those things. No excuses. I'm not going to blame it on you. I'm not going to blame it on my parents. And I'm certainly not going to blame it on my culture. It truly was me that did this. Now, The how is seen in step nine. How do we do this? Step nine says that our men should be direct is the way it describes it. That means that it needs to be specific, personal, and concrete. In other words, 
and I know this is shocking, it's probably not an email or tweet that's going to get you there. Jesus invariably touched people physically. He met people where they were face-to-face and healed them. What is described in step nine is a face-to-face encounter. And it's difficult, especially after a hurt has been done. When my son first started working his steps, he comes to step eight. You know, they want to make amends. They want to meet with you. Um, to be honest, completely apprehensive about what that meeting would be like. I'm not sure how it would go. If so much had gone on up to that point in time, um, but he wanted to own his part. There's one particular instance, and I have his permission to share this, by the way, um, when I just had to look at him and say, stop right there. Um, I don't want to hear that. And I don't want to care. I don't need the details of what you've done. Um, you need to let go of that, but not on me uh, is the best description. And then it brings us to the qualification that you find in step nine. It's what the Western religions sometimes call wisdom. The Eastern religions call this a skillful means. We make direct amends unless it would cause harm to me or to another person. One often needs time, discernment, and good advice before you know when, how, and who, and where to make an amends. There's also this other little side of this that not everyone needs to hear everything. Discern what the other actually needs to hear and has a right to hear. The danger is what people want to hear is gossipy detail that's been fed honestly, by our culture. And our wanting to know has become our right to know. See, the reality is what we find in the life of Jesus. Truth is not just what happened, but also what you or any party has a right to know and can handle responsibly. Why would I say that? Even Jesus, when he's questioned by Pilate, doesn't tell him everything. He tells him what he needs to know and that's it. Wisdom to ask. There has to be wisdom that says, what are you going to do with this information? Are you going to hurt me? Are you going to hurt others? Or maybe you have no right to this to begin with. I think it's a beautiful phrase, skillful means. Unless the gospel is real, active, unless... You're growing spiritually and you're engaged in an intimate sort of relationship with God. You are convinced, actually, that God cares for you. That actually He's caring for you would be a better way to phrase it. Holding you, restoring you. And your relationships, because of what Jesus has done, you'll never be able to do this. The fear is overwhelming and daunting. The shame will keep you locked up in a hole that you cannot get out of. In the fall of 2011, Pete Richardson walked into the sheriff's office to turn himself in for something that he had done 60 years before. While attending the Iron Bowl, the annual uh, football game between Auburn and Alabama, uh, the Auburn student stole a rat cap, a fraternity beanie off the head of an Alabama freshman. He said he and his brother were walking to Legion Field with stealing a hat in mind. That was one of the objectives, go to the ball game, look for a suitable victim and that you could attack and take his hat. Uh, the plan worked perfectly, by the way. Uh, 
He and his brother blocked the freshman and then ran off with his hat. We took it back to Auburn. We passed it around the dormitory. We even nailed it to the wall, and it stayed there. Sixty years later, Pete shows up to try to return the cap. The local sheriff told him that the statute of limitations had long expired. Um, Pete wanted to return this cap to the rightful owner to make an amend. He even provided an email just in case somebody showed up for the hat. He wrote this, It stayed with me for over 60 years. I would like to give it back to the man it belongs to. I'm sure he had some consequences he had to face. I must do something because we're close to 80, and I hope he's still alive. Look, 8 and 9, don't wait 60 years. Some of you carry awful things, things that you've done to hurt others. Um, this is an opportunity to let those things go. An opportunity to know joy, peace, and freedom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that you call on us to deep honesty in the ways that our own character defects and flaws, our own brokenness has wounded people around us. To not turn a blind eye to that, but instead to acknowledge it, embrace it, and in that we find your rich embrace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.